Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he, could, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprung up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path when the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts this morning, that what we were just singing about surrendering would truly be the character of our hearts this morning, that whatever you had to say to us, we would be ready We'd be ready to listen eagerly, to listen obediently. Lord, we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need his grace, his truth. So we ask you to now, now to work mightily in our lives through the power of your word. God, we trust your word. We trust that the power is in your word. God, that you use it to draw us to you, to change us. And so we submit now humbly to it. Lord, give us hearts that are open. We want to see you. It's in Jesus' name that we continue to worship now. Amen. You may be seated. 
Hey, why don't you go ahead and open to Mark chapter 4. We've heard that read already this morning, but if you have a Bible, why don't you just go ahead and open up there uh, to Mark chapter 4 where we're going to spend most of our time together. Worldliness. This morning we're going to be talking about worldliness. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about worldliness. You know, it's not really something that people talk about that much anymore. Uh, Some people, on the one hand, when they hear the word worldliness, they immediately think that all talk about worldliness is just legalism. You know, I'm free in Christ. You know, I can live however I want. Why are you trying to tell me how to live? But then on the other hand, um, there's another way of looking at worldliness in a really shallow way. That, that, that the only thing we really take into consideration is maybe, you know, what movies we watch or what kind of entertainment we enjoy, or what kind of music we listen to, or what kind of beverages that we choose to consume or not to consume. You know, that's sort of the idea of worldliness for some of us. But for most of us, I think when we hear the word worldliness, uh, there's all sorts of different things, all sorts of different images that pop in our mind about other people. But do we ever stop to consider that maybe worldliness might be us. So what does the Bible have to say about worldliness? Uh, one passage that I think gives us some indication is Romans 12.2. Uh, the first half of the verse says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think this is helpful because it teaches us that worldliness it is a pattern. It is like a mold. Um, my son, Benjamin, he's almost two, and he loves to play with Play-Doh, and already he understands that when you take uh, a piece of Play-Doh and you press a mold down on top of it, you can turn that Play-Doh into almost anything, right? We can have little bananas, we can have little apples, uh, we can have little airplanes, we can have little dadas. I mean, anything you want, you can press that, press that mold down and you can form that Play-Doh, and in, in, a, in a sense, it's almost like we should think of our lives that way. It's almost like our lives are like Play-Doh, and the world comes in and it conforms us. It presses down around us. It, it teaches us how to think, how to act, and even how to believe. But here's the problem. We can't just define worldliness as lawlessness or rebelliousness. That is too obvious. Uh, what we've been seeing so far as we work through this Gospel of Mark is that you can be just as anti-God as a religious person as you can be as a rebellious person. That we cannot, we cannot believe that worldliness is just about our outside actions. That because worldliness involves things like pride and selfishness, and immorality, and nationalism, and selfish ambition, and and all sorts of other things that, that come out of our hearts. We have to realize that we can be on the outside the most religious person or the most rebellious person, and yet we can still be conformed to the same pattern of this world. In Mark chapter 4, We've already heard it read, and now we're going to unpack it together. The kingdom of God confronts head-on the kingdom of this world. And what that means this morning is that Jesus is going to confront us. Jesus is going to challenge us so that he can save us. And as, as Jesus said in Matthew eleven six, 6, this is my prayer this morning. As Jesus said in Matthew eleven six, 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we're going to look at how the kingdom of God confronts our worldliness in five particular ways. So first, the kingdom of God confronts our natural pride. If you're taking notes, the kingdom of God confronts our natural pride. Now, many of us, I think, have been taught that the reason that Jesus taught in in these parables and and the way that he used this method of teaching was to make it easier, easier for us to understand his message. But what we see in Mark chapter 4 is that that's actually not the case. So I think we need to start by considering from the text, why is it that Jesus is choosing to teach in this form? Why is he teaching with parables? And I think we're going to see a few clues that the reason Jesus is teaching in parables is that he's intentionally confronting our natural pride. So here's a, first, a few clues. First, 
Uh, when Jesus opens up in, in this parable in verse 3, the first word out of his mouth is, listen. Now, every, um, when you hear the word listen, it puts the person speaking in a place of authority. It makes them the teacher. It puts them in charge, and it means that we need to receive something from them. And as we all know, our natural pride, we don't like anybody telling us what to do. We don't like anybody telling us how to live our lives. A second clue comes at the end of the parable in verse 9. Don't worry, we're going to unpack the parable. But for now, at the end of verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What an interesting thing to say. You know, everybody could audibly hear what Jesus was saying, and yet no one could hear what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they hadn't been given spiritual ears to hear. In other words, the kingdom of God is something that must be given to us as a gift. A third clue comes in verse 11. When Jesus gets alone with his disciples, he's taught the parable. Now he gets alone with his disciples. This is what he says. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So in other words, the method of parable teaching was perfect for, the, for teaching this mysterious, the mystery of the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God is not something that's accessible to us. It's not something that's immediately obvious to us. And so Jesus choosing to teach in a mysterious way through parables mirrors very well the mystery of the kingdom, which we're going to be unpacking this morning. And then I think a final clue, clue comes uh, in the last two verses of our section today. We actually didn't read it uh, as a part of the reading, so I want, I want to draw your attention to it. Um, turn over to verses 33 and 34 and listen carefully to how Mark adds this little editorial comment. At the end of Jesus' teaching, Mark adds this little editorial comment for us. He says, With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now this, I think, strikes deeply at our pride. Jesus is showing favoritism. You say, well, favoritism's not fair. Guess what else is not fair? Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And there's nothing, in my opinion, that is more irritating to the natural pride of man than the reality of God's grace. So, adding these clues together, why is Jesus teaching using the method of parables? Why is he teaching in this way? Well, this is why. Because the natural pride of man needs to be broken before the announcement of the kingdom of God will be good news instead of threatening news. We need to be shut down in our own strength before we can find strength in, in Jesus. Um, I know I already mentioned my son Benjamin, Benjamin this morning, but I see a principle playing out in our house a lot. Uh, Benjamin is like his dad, and he's a little hard-headed, and there's a lot of times when there's, there's something he's trying to do, something he's trying to do at the house, and he can't do it, but he certainly will not let you help him do it. You know, he's crying because he can't figure something out, but as soon as you come over to try to help him, he just flips out even more, and I think I see a spiritual principle in that, that you and I, our lives aren't working and so we just keep trying the same things over and over, and God is trying to help us. God is trying to tell us what to do, but we won't listen to him. And so we just sort of flail around, trying to, trying to, trying to do it our own way, getting nowhere. And I think that sometimes, what we see, what we see what, with what Jesus is doing here, sometimes in God's grace, what he does is he just allows us to fail so bad that we actually realize that we do need his help. And I think that's what's going on here with these parables. So when the kingdom of God confronts our natural pride, how should we respond? Well, I think first and foremost, we must admit that we need help. We must admit that we need help. When all the world around us says, yes, you can, the kingdom of God actually says, no, you can't. When all the world around us tells us, you, you know, you have what it takes, the kingdom of God actually says, you don't have what it takes. 
When all the world around us tells us, hey, if you just put your mind to, to, to do something, you can make it happen. The kingdom of God says, no, 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 no. You are utterly and completely incapable. Unless I come into your life, you're helpless. So before we can make progress in the kingdom, we have to regress. Uh, before we can become wise in the kingdom, we have to become fools. Jesus said it this way. I love this little analogy. Jesus said, if anyone is going to enter the kingdom, you actually have to become like a little child. Something so radically drastic has to, has to happen to you. He says it another way this way. He says, you actually have to be born again. You have to have a second birth if you're going to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think we need to, at this point, move on, move on to the explanation of the parable. Uh, I know we skipped over it, and I think it leads to our second trait of worldliness that we see in this passage. So second, the kingdom of God confronts our functional idolatry. The kingdom of God confronts our functional idolatry. So Jesus has told the parable, and now he begins to explain it. And first he tells them in verse 14 that the sower is likened to someone who's teaching the word. Imagine a sower sowing seeds. It's like a person teaching or preaching the word. And then he begins to teach us about what happens as the seeds first fall along the path. Let's read verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus is teaching us that when when the preaching of the kingdom, when the word of the kingdom goes out, something supernatural is happening. When the teaching of the kingdom goes out, a spiritual war takes place. Now we have to ask, what does this satanic activity look like when the kingdom is preached? When the word of the kingdom is proclaimed, what does this satanic activity look like? Well, right now, in this moment, I'm not talking about when Jesus, I'm talking about right now in this moment. As the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, as the word of the kingdom is being proclaimed, Satan is going to come to some of you, and he is going to snatch the word of the kingdom away. It's not going to penetrate some of your hearts this morning, because Satan is against you. And this is what's, what he's going to do. He's going to distract you. He's going to lie to you. He's going to accuse you. He's going to remind you of all the, the problems in your life. He's going to bring up all the, the discord and the anger and the frustration and the bitterness that you have. He's going to swell your pride and your selfishness so that you, you have a hardened heart that the word will never penetrate. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdom of this world, it is nothing short of supernatural war. Every sermon, every small group, every kids' ministry moment, every youth group meeting, every FCA meeting, every coastal school ministries meeting, every good news club, every young life meeting, every Baptist collegiate ministries meeting, every time Ken and Karen gather with the kids in Zambia, come go with us. There is an absolute spiritual war taking place. We're not just playing games with this. this is, there is something supernatural that we cannot see going on. And we have to be aware that we have an adversary and we cannot be ignorant of his schemes. Then Jesus moves on to explain what happens when the seed, that is sown, the seed that is sown on the rocky ground. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy and then have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately they fall away. So Jesus is explaining a phenomenon that we've all seen, right? We receive it with joy. We get all excited in the moment. Oh man, this, you know, this sounds awesome. But then when the first tribulation, when the first sign of persecution comes on account of the word, you know, it fizzles, it's scorched, and the fruit that looked like it was there gets snuffed out. So what's really going on in our hearts with this rocky soil? Well, I think to figure it out, we have to ask, why is it that Jesus singles out tribulations, 
and persecution as the thing that scorch the little bit of fruit that seems to be there. Why does he single those things out? Well, tribulation and persecution are painful. They hurt. They steal our comfort away. And for all of us, you know, we're happy with Jesus as long as it seems like he's giving us some advantage in this life. But when Jesus starts talking about tribulations and suffering, and as we're going to see as we work through Mark, when Jesus starts talking about dying on crosses, we bail out. Then he moves on and explains the final way in which the word falls ineffective when it comes in, it's scattered among the thorns. Look at verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus points to the fact that many people, when they hear the word, in the moment it sounds great. They love what they hear, but then before it can actually come in and change their lives and bear fruit, it gets choked out by other things around them. Whether it's the the cares of the world, i.e., caring about what the world cares about that chokes out the word, whether it's the deceitfulness of riches, in other words, the, the, the pursuit of wealth or the false promises that wealth makes comes in and chokes out the word. And then I love how, you know, if, if some of us are feeling like we can excuse ourselves, Jesus just adds, and the desire for other things. That basically anything you can possibly think of that you could learn to love or learn to long for could choke the word, choke the good news of the kingdom out from bearing fruit in our lives. And so I think we have to feel the reality of the weight of this. The kingdom of God has broken into the world, and it confronts the the kingdom of this world. And yet we reject God's kingdom because we are so totally immersed in worldliness. Jobs, kids, bills, cars, politics, health, houses, clothes, gossip, relationships, entertainment, sports, school, greed, dreams, social media, sex, ministry, the economy, food, holidays, you name it. It has the power to choke out the word of the kingdom in our lives. In reality, I think all three of these soils actually boil down really to one thing that what gets in the way of receiving the kingdom is our functional idolatry, that we worship things that are created over the creator. We prioritize, prioritize things that God has made over God himself. Our functional idolatry robs God of the glory he's due, but it also robs us of enjoying his kingdom. We need to realize that this parable, this is, this is so scary. This parable is not so much about us rejecting the kingdom in the moment that we hear it. It's not you sitting there right now thinking, oh, I don't like what he's saying. It's the fact that we can actually reject the kingdom afterwards when what we heard with glad approval doesn't actually change the way we live. That we can nod our heads in agreement this morning We can love what we hear, and yet if it doesn't actually produce change in our life tomorrow, we haven't really received it. Now, after showing us that there's an infinite amount of ways for our functional idolatry to rob us from actually hearing the word, Jesus does go on to show us what this good soil is like in verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, three things, hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. It's almost like Jesus reverses the the progression. The word must pass through the the blinding challenges of Satan. It must go deep enough that it actually takes root down in our hearts, and it must... uh, turn over the tables of our functional idolatry so that Jesus actually comes to have first place, so that rather rather than the word being choked out by those idols, the word itself chokes our idols. And now Jesus becomes our idol. Jesus becomes the one who has the first place. We can really, truly, honestly say we love Jesus. I love, I've heard my dad do a lot of weddings uh, over the years, lots of weddings, 
And um, one of my favorite things about when my dad does a wedding, he catches everybody by surprise because the first question that, that he asks is, he looks at the bride and then he looks at the groom and he says, do you love Jesus more than anything or anyone else in the world? And right there before everybody, what he's really saying is, if you can't answer yes to that question, then your marriage is doomed to fail. Jesus must come first, or everything else will lose its significance. So when the kingdom of God confronts our functional idolatry, how should we respond? Well, we respond by idolizing Jesus, but, you know, you know we'll, all of us will say, well, you know, I, I've got to work, and I've, I've got to raise my kids, and I've got to do whatever, but I think the question we always have to ask ourselves is, you know, like, why am I actually doing what I'm doing? Like, what actually steals my time away? You know, how did I actually get where I am right now? Uh, Jesus is, is, is cutthroat about this. In Matthew 10, 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, can you think of a more honorable or noble thing in the world than to love your kids? And Jesus says, if you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy of me. And this is what I think, this, this is the principle for me. Satan does not care what you love more than Jesus as long as you love something more than Jesus. Satan doesn't need you to go completely blow up your life. All he needs you to do is love your kids more than Jesus. All he needs you to do is love your work more than Jesus. That's all he needs to do. So if we're going to enter the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom, then we've got to get vigilant about replacing our functional idolatry with Jesus idolatry. And I think in a lot of ways this leads to our next section of parables. So third this morning, the kingdom of God confronts our sense of entitlement. The kingdom of God confronts our sense of entitlement. Uh, one thing I think we have to be careful for as we read uh, through these different parables throughout the different gospels is that sometimes in the context, Jesus uses a similar image to, to, to make a different point. And so I think in this particular section, we have to be really careful with both the lamp and the measures Jesus is using this in a different way than he does in some other places. And so let's pick up in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So I think this is, the, this is the, for me, the clue that helps kind of unpack this little section. Is that, if you remember, Jesus repeats this phrase again. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And remember what that meant before? It's like the kingdom is not something that we can grasp. The kingdom is something that God must give. But then, just after saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus adds... Pay attention to what you hear. In other words, while it does have to be given to us by grace, we are still responsible for how intently and how enthusiastically we listen to the message of the kingdom. I think we need to remember that Jesus does, even though he's speaking in these parables, he does want people to receive the good news of the kingdom. The lamp here in Mark chapter 4, that, where Jesus talks about the lamp here, he's actually talking about himself He's saying, hey, I'm not in hiding. There, there's, no, there's no veil over me. I'm right here. The kingdom is right here. All you have to do is open your eyes and look at me. But just because I'm here, just because the lights of the kingdom have been turned on, doesn't mean that you automatically get to participate in it. You are not entitled to becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to come talk to a man who was religious, but kind of skeptical about Christianity. And his, his biggest problem with Christianity was the doctrine of hell. 
Uh, he couldn't imagine that God wouldn't show grace to everyone and just allow everyone to come into heaven. And so I took a little bit of a risk. I just sort of had an idea of how, what kind of response I would get. And so I took a little bit of a risk, and I just asked him offhand uh, what, what his position on participation trophies was. And sure enough, he just launched out into this, you know, long discussion about how, you know, oh, participation trophies, it's killing our kids, it's killing our society. Kids need to understand how to work hard and that there's a difference between winning or losing. And I looked back and I said, so, so, you're, so you're that excited, you're that passionate about not having participation trophies in Little League Baseball, but you expect God to give them out in the game of life? When we stand before God one day, there will be no participation trophies. The only thing that we are entitled to in our sin is hell. Anything better that we get from God will be total grace. Now, just like the lamp, Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm out in the open. It doesn't mean you get me automatically, but I'm visible and I'm here. He does something similar with the measures in verse 24. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, when Jesus talked about, talks about measures, he's talking about us judging other people. But here, in this passage, Jesus is using it to talk about how eagerly we listen. In other words, if we don't take Jesus seriously, if we don't thrust ourselves towards hearing what he's saying, then we won't get anything from him. But if we give ourselves completely over to it, if we thrust ourselves towards Jesus, he'll give us all we can handle. Um, when the reformer Martin Luther recounts what gave him the breakthrough to the gospel, this was in the 16th century, the church is in utter decay, utter decline. When he recounts the story of how he wrestled with the scriptures. He wrestled with Romans 1.17, which unlocked the truth of the gospel. I want you to hear it, from, hear it in his own words. He says, nevertheless, I beat persistently upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted at last. And listen to how he puts this. By the mercy of God, meditating day and night. You see how he put those together? By the mercy of God. God didn't owe me this, but I was meditating day and night. I was beating. I was searching. I was giving everything to, to know what does God mean. He says, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He through, through faith is righteous shall live. There I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Like Luther, Jesus wants us to beat persistently upon the word of God until, by God's mercy, he reveals his truth to us. It's almost like he wants us to imagine when we sit here and listen to these sermons, when we open up our Bibles and read in the, read in the morning, it's like there's a there's a door, and we're supposed to knock on it. We're supposed to knock on it for dear life, like, like there's a person asleep on the other side, and we want to wake them up. Please, God, please reveal this to me. I need you. He wants us to knock and beat until, by God's mercy, he unlocks, and he gives us the truth, and he gives us ears to hear. So when the kingdom of God confronts our sense of entitlement, how should we respond? I think we should respond by obeying what Jesus tells us here, to pay attention to what we hear. It's not enough just to hear it, but to pay attention to what we hear, to give ourselves with the measure that we use in our listening will be the measure that we get in our receiving. I want to give you just a few short tips. This is just related to Sunday morning. This is just related to hearing the Word of God week in, week out on Sunday mornings. A few, a few tips real quick. Um, consider what you do the night before. Um, I know it feels like, oh no, like Saturday's my day. I'm like, hey, actually Saturday is Jesus' day too. Um, so maybe it might, like, like if, you, if you consider like, hey, I need to get a good night's rest for 
whatever I have to do in the morning, maybe consider like I should get a good night's rest before I come to hear God's word in the morning. A second thing, consider reading the passage the day before. Um, we're tracking through Mark, guys. Like, you know exactly what's coming next week. We're, we're going to be... We're going to be picking right back up as soon, the verse we left off today. And so go ahead and read it, uh, read it for yourself. Um, another thing, I don't know what your approach to this building is on Sunday mornings, but consider approaching prayerfully. Uh, maybe, maybe whether it's by yourself or in the, in the car with the people that you're with, maybe just take a few minutes. As you sort of approach that bridge or whichever bridge you come in on, you know, just as a family, say a little prayer. Ask God to soften your hearts and ready your hearts to receive his, his word. Another thing is this, take notes. I know some of you are really faithful in taking notes, but I mean, it's just a fact of life. Like if you involve more than one sense in what you're hearing, you're going to retain it better. And so consider starting like next week, go buy a journal. You can you know, find a little Dollar Tree journal and just start jotting some notes down. Pay attention to what you hear, Jesus says. Um, another thing would be to, to discuss what you hear afterwards, whether it's at lunch or at home, or maybe you have a friend in the church that, that you like talking to, like consider having a conversation. Hey, what did you think about the sermon? What really stuck out to you? How is God, you know, challenging you with this sermon? Have a little discussion afterwards. Another thing would be to pick one of the verses in the text, one of the verses in the text, and try to memorize it that week. Spend time that week while you're at work, while you're in the car, you know, meditating on that, that scripture that you heard. And then um, the final thing is this. Guys, never, please never be afraid to come up and ask questions. We love to talk to people. I think it, it, it says a lot about how intently someone's listening when they want to come up and ask questions after the sermon. And so please, please take every effort. Maybe just pick one or two of these things and say, you know what, I want to obey Jesus and start paying attention to what I hear. And so I'm going to start employing a few of these strategies to, to, to focus, to get in tune with what God is saying to us through his word. So with the measure that we use in our listening will be the measure that God uses in his giving. But Jesus presses further. So fourth, the kingdom of God confronts our desire for control. The kingdom of God confronts our desire for control. We pick up in verses 26 through 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. And the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once... He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus tells this story about a farmer. The farmer has a certain measure of responsibility for his crops. He sows, you know, he plows, he, he reaps. But there's one thing that the farmer cannot do. The one thing that the farmer cannot do, he cannot cause his crops to grow. So in what sense is the kingdom of God like this? Well, we are completely and totally powerless to usher in, to bring about, to further, or to grow the kingdom of God. The kingdom is God's kingdom. It is His redemptive work in the world. Only God can usher in. Only God can build. Only God can bring His kingdom to this earth. It's the lesson of the farmer. In my estimation, this is without a doubt the plague of the church in the last century. It is the plague of pragmatism. It's the idea that there's this sort of formula for church growth. That you check a few boxes and you twist a few levers and then presto, you know, growth. It's the idea that we can adopt the strategies of the world as an appropriate strategy for preaching the gospel. It's baptizing anything that's worldly and trying to use it as God's method for bringing about his kingdom on this earth. The plague of pragmatism has completely hollowed out our churches. And I want to be clear, I don't mean has emptied out, although that's happening too. It has hollowed out our churches. We've, we've seen in our day, we've learned in our day, how um, pragmatism affects actual farming, like real farming. So the food that you and I go eat at the grocery store has been sapped of its nutrients. That even a lot of the good foods that you and I think are healthy are being sapped of their nutrients. Why? Because in America, we have 
adopted pragmatism even in our farming. How can we do it the fastest? How can we do it the cheapest? How can we make every apple look exactly the same? That is pragmatism. And what it's done to our food, it has also done to our churches. All the doctrine sapped out. All the holiness sapped out. All the prayer sapped out. All the utter and complete dependence upon God sapped out. The weird thing about pragmatism is that you th- it kind of comes from a good motive because you think you're trying to make it better, but in the end, it actually doesn't help. When we trust that the kingdom is God's to bring, that it's His power, that it's His redemptive work, we can step back, we can trust Him, We can stop all the manipulation, all the entertainment tactics, all the gimmicks, and we can trust that the power is in His Word. The power is in waiting, in praying, and in casting ourselves upon His mercy. It's His kingdom. And He has promised to bring it about. Finally, kingdom of God confronts our longing for status. The kingdom of God confronts our longing for status. I'm really thankful that in this series of parables, Jesus finally does, even though it's still in sort of mystery form, Jesus does reveal the mystery to us. See, like the kingdom of God itself is not a mystery, right? All the Jews believe that. All the Israelites believed that there was a kingdom and that it was God's. So there's something particular about it that was a mystery. And Jesus reveals it for us here in verses 30 and 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out larger branches so that the birds of the air can make, its ne- make nests in its shade. The mystery of the kingdom is this, that when God's kingdom broke into the world, it came first only in an inaugurated form. The kingdom included two stages. First, the stage of grace, and then the stage of judgment. First, the stage of patience, and then the stage of wrath. First, the stage of humiliation, and then the stage of glory. The kingdom of God came into this world like a mustard seed. Little little baby Jesus, no room in the inn, not even a, not even a, a real bed, no fanfare, no parade, no party. A few shepherds got in on the action, but... Most of the world slept as God's little mustard seed kingdom came into the world in Jesus Christ. And then rather than Jesus carrying himself with terror and judgment and wrath, Jesus went around preaching. And then ultimately, the weakness of the kingdom came to its culmination as the king died on a cross. Even John the Baptist, we already learned about John, a great figure in biblical history, but even John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, he started to doubt if Jesus really was the king. You know, he knew about the kingdom and he knew about Jesus, but he was saying, you know, why haven't you judged the nations? Why haven't you brought down your wrath upon Rome? Why aren't you Preaching that same sort of scathing message that I preached, Jesus. And that's when Jesus said in Matthew eleven six, 6, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, the kingdom will come with glory. The kingdom will be consummated. There will be a day when all of us, every single one of us, 
We'll see God's kingdom and we'll realize that it is the biggest, most grandest, most beautiful thing we've ever seen. And all the birds of the air can come in and make its nest and find its shade there. But for now, the kingdom has come in humiliation. It has come through the weakness of the cross. And that was a stumbling block for the Jews. It was foolishness for Greeks. But I think it's just inconvenient for Americans. Jesus' kingdom came in humiliation. And anyone who would enter his kingdom must come into that humiliation. We are in the world, but we are not of this world. We are pilgrims simply passing through. Our citizenship is not ultimately of this world. Our citizenship is with Jesus in heaven. And if maybe you're wondering, why does God allow his kingdom to be treated this way? Why does God allow his citizens to be treated this way? Guys, there was no other way. The king had to come first in humiliation because if he didn't, none of us would have entered it. The only way in was for our sins to be paid for. The only way in was for God to come first in grace and patience. And he tells us in 2 Peter that even though it feels like thousands and thousands of years to God, it's just, a, it's just a couple little days. And he's saying, just be patient. Why? Because I still have people that I want to save. And when my kingdom comes the second time, it's going to come in wrath. It's going to come in judgment. And so in t- for, in t- from now till then, rather than complaining about what's going on in the world, complaining about how God's kingdom is being treated, he's saying, go and spread the news It comes first through the cross, and then it comes through glory, and we're still living in the age of the cross. Worldliness is a much deeper, much more difficult thing than I think we first imagine. Jesus takes us from thinking of worldliness mainly as externals, as actions, as associations, and he comes right after our hearts. He knows that whether we're clean cut or we're scruffy, whether we're religious or rebellious, something in us must be confronted. Something in us must be broken before the announcement of his humiliated kingdom comes as good news to us so that we're ready to receive it with faith we're ready to enter in and say Jesus if your cross means foolishness then I'm ready to be foolish if your cross means humiliation then I am ready to be humiliated and when we receive Jesus like little children when we embrace the bloody cross then we enter the kingdom. We receive the king. And one day, when he comes in glory, we will be in glory with him. That is the mystery of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. And as Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that in your wisdom, when you sent your king into the world, you sent him to save sinners. Lord, we pray this morning that our pride and our entitlement and our worldly selfishness and our desire to be raised in some sort of weird status would fall away. And Lord, that we'd be able to embrace you whatever it means, Lord, whatever it means 
for our stay here on this earth, that you'd set our eyes on that future day, that future glory that you've promised, that the joy, just like the joy set before Jesus, led him through the cross, that, Lord, that same joy would lead us through our cross. God, make us like little children. We want you as our king. It's in Jesus' name we continue to worship now.